During this Mission 119 time, I'm going to be preaching each week on a different uh, passage that we read in the previous week. And likewise, if you're in a small group, uh, you'll be discussing the readings from the previous week in your small groups. But today I'm going to talk about one of the central stories of salvation history, which, which is something that uh, has been called, and I've adopted this, the promised plan of God throughout from Genesis 1, Genesis 3, all the way to the end in Revelation. There's this, though the Bible is written by so many different authors over such a long period of time in so many different genres, uh, poetry, history, uh, you, know, you name it, it's in there, that there's this trace, there's this thread of salvation history that's woven through the whole thing, and it's the promised plan of God to save his people. And we traced it right uh, this week through Genesis 3 to 11. But to begin uh, with this story, we have to look at, you know, where things went wrong. Why do people need salvation? You know, why is that important? So as, as John Soper said, as this video alluded to, there is, and I wanted to share this with you, there is some, you know, controversy over the Genesis creation account in Genesis uh, 1 that causes many thoughtful, reasonable uh, people who have looked at the discoveries of science and, and the age of different things that are discovered to walk away from the faith. In fact, I, I've, list, I've been listening to a, uh, a set of stories of people that have walked away from the faith and, and haven't come back, and this is how it looks. Uh, they have, they're going along in their faith. There's a personal trauma that they experience in their lives. And then they just begin to question when things are coming unraveled. They question everything they've ever been told. And if they haven't thought carefully about the things they're not sure about, those things can fall apart. And many times people come into high school or in college, and you know, the, the creation account feels challenged, it feels very hostile, and so people end up walking away. But I think that you know, as, as a, a part of many other factors, it causes people to walk away from faith. And I believe um, unnecessarily. I think it's important that people not wink at their doubts and questions about faith in their life. I think people should look into those things, and people should investigate those things and come to some kind of conclusions of their own about those things in good times, because it's just human nature that when things fall apart in your life, you just question everything, and if you're not in a good frame of mind to really think clearly about things, you might end up walking away from the faith, which is so unnecessary. But this is what happens. People, people have questions, they don't ask them, they don't think about them, they don't come to reasonable answers. They have trauma. And many times if their foundation is shaky, that can lead them to fall away. Is that true? I think it's true. And I don't blame people you know, who go through traumas. and all this. Like, That's a horrible thing. People go through terrible things in this world that cause them to question everything. We talked about some of that last week. But I think, it's such a, a tr I think that the, the cure for that is to come to some solid answers about the things we're wondering about. It's a very good thing. So Genesis 1, the creation account, is one of those things that people repeatedly say, but because of science, I know the Bible's not true, therefore, boom, you know, I'm done. Uh, but uh, the encouragement that I have uh, is that if you have felt embattled or you have felt doubtful about the Genesis account or the validity of the Bible subsequently, based on seeing some contradictions with science. The encouragement is there's no real need to have a hostile environment between science and faith as Christians. Uh, 
I mean, I enjoy science as much as the next person. I love to read scientific journals and hear about different things. Uh, but there's no reason to promote a hostile environment between the two, the two things, because nothing in the text of the Bible, in my opinion, as it was originally written, needs, us, needs to cause us to throw up our hands and give up on the faith. Uh, in fact, how we read Genesis 1, 1, and 2 uh, many times causes us to have some ideas about the Bible which aren't necessarily true and can cause people to stumble. And there's different ways to look at this. John Soper rightly said, we shouldn't park on this. It's not important. The important thing is God created. And likewise in the video we saw, it's not important. But it's good to at least think through these things and come to some conclusions for ourselves. I'm going to give you a variety of options that Christians have considered. So it says in the, in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. First of all, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. And as, as, as I would say to you, as a foundational thing, God is the creator. Everything that we see in this world started with God. He is the cause of everything that we see here. And that's an important thing to take to heart. And I'd like to point out that that idea of God being the creator cannot be disproven through science. It's a premise that we accept as Christians through faith. And it's as reasonable of a premise as anyone else's premise. Because guess what? Who was there? Who was there when God created the heavens and the earth? Nobody. <laughs> no matter how many degrees you have, how much Bible you know, you cannot prove scientifically that God did not create the heavens and the earth. <laughs> In fact, you know, uh, as John Soper said, you know, it, it, it does take as much faith in many ways to believe as it does to not believe. And there's plenty of reasonable uh, evidence that there is, uh, there is a creative creator, a personality behind what we see every day. And I think the most, I did once debate, and it wasn't really a debate, it was a kind exchange of words in a college setting. With a, with a philosophy professor, and I, and I think I made the offhand comment that you can't disprove God's existence, and he said that he thought he could, and I wish we had gotten to talk about that, because I couldn't, I'd never heard anyone make that claim before. Uh, but an honest-minded person generally uh, cannot say that, you know, God didn't create the world. We have questions like, where did matter come, come from to begin with? There's always that extra layer of, what is the the, the uncaused cause that brought this into being, you know, the spark that set this into existence, where did matter come from? And all of those thoughts, for me, end in God. I also think that looking at creation, seeing the intricacy and beauty of creation and the mysteries of creation, it's just so hard. It's so hard to, and I understand that people accept this by faith, but it's so hard for me to believe that God, there's not a creative, masterful personality behind everything we hear and see. There's so many, so many things we've discovered in nature and so many things that science cannot explain. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, I, I consider things like, like the universe and how it just seems to endlessly telescope out. And science, scientists and astronomers have not been able to see any point where, where it just kind of tapers in and that's the end of it, it just expands forever, seemingly. It's amazing. That stuff blows my mind. 
I've shared some of these things before. You know, when I read about how monarch butterflies have the instincts to get from one place to another and to follow these patterns, no one knows how that works. They just do it. It's incredible. And like, that's the kind of stuff. I read a book about monarch butterflies to my kid, and I was like, brought to tears thinking about the glory of God and the mystery that's in creation. We've lost a lot of that mystery, but there's a beautiful creation here um, that, that we have. And you know, my conviction is that putting your faith in God being the creator uh, is, is a very reasonable choice for anybody, Christian or not Christian. It's as reasonable as saying that he wasn't. And in fact, I think it's more reasonable to think there is an intelligent being behind everything we hear and see. I may be preaching to the choir, but I'm just talking here, you know, for my, for my own benefit. So God is the creator. That's my first point today. That's my, my premise. It can't be, pro- can't be proven or disproven, but I think it's, there's a lot of evidence for it. Um, second of all, you know, looking at Genesis 1, this is a, this is a book and an account that's putting itself forward as being real history. People with names, real rivers be, with their names being written in the book. And, those, and a couple of those rivers are in modern-day Iraq. So Garden of Eden, I guess, was in Iraq. Uh, very you know, interesting stuff. You know, these places really exist. They're real times, real people. There's no reason not to read uh, Genesis as history. And Jesus Christ himself, if you believe in Jesus, in Matthew 19, he, can, he teaches, assuming that Adam, was real, Adam and Eve were real people. And in a few weeks, whenever that baby comes from the Detweiler house, the fourth baby, uh, Aaron's going to preach on Romans 5, and the Apostle Paul assumes that... that Adam and Eve were real people. This was not something that was questioned by those folks who we trust so much. So I read the Bible as a real historical account where merited when it's, when it's the historical sections. And uh, I think there's a lot of great reasons to, to think that. So, so conflict with modern science really, now you're thinking this seems like, like a classroom setting or something. I promise I'll, I'll put on my, my uh, you know, leather elbow squares or something and take them off later, I promise. Uh, so the conflict with modern science truly begins when people begin to discuss the age of the earth. You know, we've had all these different discoveries that appear to be much, much older than people have supposed, uh, perhaps religious people have supposed the world uh, is, is old. And uh, modern science has said, you know, the earth is very, very old. And in response uh, to this seemingly threatening idea, you know, many Christians and other Bible folks, as, as, as has been pointed out, use the genealogies and count in the Bible between generations and all that stuff. A very imperfect science, by the way, because that's not how it works at all. But they've come to, come to see that we're 6,000 or so years old. Um, but it's, 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 a, it's a noble attempt to look and see how old the earth is. And this becomes a point of contention between scientifically-minded people who are reasonable and also Christian people who are reasonable people. But I don't think that it is necessary. Uh, And I'll tell you one reason why I don't think it's necessary, which you can either accept or reject. And I'll tell you a whole bunch of other uh, different ideas about creation that you can either accept or reject. The point is, this is on you to really come to answers that make sense to you. And I think it's just as reasonable to say that God created the earth in an instant over seven 24-hour days and that the earth is 6,000 years old, I have no problem with that idea at all. 
That's, that's fine with me. But um, I've come to see a little bit of nuance in that as well. And I don't have any less respect for people that have a different view than me. You understand this is a matter of, um, of how you think about things. So from a biblical theological point of view, looking at the ancient language, not even looking at science, uh, I, I look at the words that are being used. And in the beginning, uh, the word that is used when it says God created the heavens and the earth is a word, reshit, which has, was, was shared in the video. And every time this word for beginning is used in the Bible, it always ref- refers to an indefinite, though limited, period of time. It could be months, it could be years. It's an und- indeterminate period of time. Every time it's used in the Bible. And Moses could have used any other word for the beginning. There's words that mean in an instant in Hebrew, but he chose this word, reshit. Uh, when Job, when it describes the beginning of Job's troubles in the book of Job, the word reshit is used in the beginning of this. And, and, and before, before anything uh, else had happened, everything in his life, his wives, his children, everything he had accumulated, this, his story started there in the beginning. There was a whole time before that. Likewise, when people are recording uh, reigns of kings in the Old Testament, such as in Genesis 10, uh, the word Rashid is used, and it's, uh, this king's reign started here. But we know that, the actual, that that king was actually reigning for many years before that. But they only started recording his reign at that moment. That's just how it worked. It's very strange, but think about this. President Trump is inaugurated last um, January, right? So the Bible might say, Three years later, in 2021, that's when Donald Trump begins to be president. It's a very interesting thing, but there's always this, this gap when we talk about that. So there is allowance, and I'm just saying allowance, in the language for Rashid to refer to a longer period of time than we know. And so you can read Genesis 1, 1, and 2 as a two-part, uh, as a two-part thing. One, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the Rashid, in an indef- indefinite Though not unlimited period of time, God created the heavens and the earth. That could have been an instant, could have been days, months, weeks, years, thousands of years, billions of years. My conviction is that it could be any, any number of years. Could God have created it with a snap of his fingers? Yes, he could have. Absolutely. I'm just saying, I'm telling you what the Bible language allows for. So in this first act, God creates the heavens and the earth. The earth is formless and void. Darkness is over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. In verse 2, God takes this formless and empty void that he's created over an indeterminate period of time, and he begins to fashion the land to be inhabited by people. And that's the sixth, you know, in my opinion, 24-hour days of creation. I love this view because it incorporates all of the views. You know, I believe that there's no reason to think they aren't 24-hour days. So I think God created the earth, created and prepared the land in two different parts. And I think it's really interesting, something I considered this week, since God is a very consistent God, this word rashit, which is an indefinite period of time, which we know is the beginning, is a very similar concept to the idea when we say the end times. Since Jesus rose again, we've been living in the end times, between the time of Jesus' first coming, his death and resurrection, and his second coming, when he will bring things to their conclusion. And so in a very symmetrical move, for me it's very poetic, you know, in the beginning, in the end, refers to this period of time where God is preparing. And what we know God is doing now in the end times is since his desire is that none should perish, he's working hard to save as many people as possible through the church and otherwise. 
So in the beginning, in the end. Uh, those are, uh, that's a theory that I hold, that historical creationism. Uh, but there's also other great theories about the beginning because this is not a conclusive thing. Uh, God can do anything. Uh, he can, as I've said, take an old earth that he has, that's formless and void that he's created and in six literal days bring about creation, which is, which is my position and many other uh, evangelical Christians' positions. Also, those six literal days could have been longer than, than, than the 24-hour days. Some people think that. Uh, some people believe that just as, as is a straightforward, like just boom, 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 you know, God created the heavens and the earth, six days of creation, seventh day of rest, boom, that's it. And any of those theories is perfectly reasonable for a Christian to hold and don't necessarily have to stand in opposition to science and be combative. I think that's a very bad thing when we're not listening to people and we're, we're constantly fighting and being, uh, you know, people, people can just get rough. So it's good to just think about these things in a level way. Uh, likewise, you know, God could create, um, think about this interesting one, Adam was created as an older man. Like maybe he was 20 years old. So God created Adam instantly as a 20-year-old man. God could have actually created the whole universe instantly and have it appear to be very, very old. Rings in the trees and everything. God could have done that. There's all kinds of ways God could have created. And, uh, and we can all live in harmony. We can talk about faith, talk about science, and have a good conversation. But my concern is that people don't go into high school, don't go, don't go into college ill-equipped to talk about the deep questions of faith that people really wonder about privately. Uh, because if they do, or even as, as us as adults, because if you do, then you feel like, wow, if this isn't true, then everything is false. But that's not the case. It doesn't have to be that way. But God being the creator, of course, is the most important thing. And now I'm pulling off the squares. Even though I wasn't a very good academic, I tried it on for a few minutes. Uh, after the work of creation was complete, whatever it looked like, during those six days, God created Adam and Eve. We believe this. Real people. The first man and woman. And the only thing in creation that was created in God's image. And looking at Genesis the last few weeks, I was just in awe of, of the amazing permission of our God who created us. And you'll see this um, in, in this account. He created us in his image. We're going to read some summaries uh, we're actually going to read straight through the text. I'm going to take you to Genesis 1, 26 to 31, then jump forward to 2, 15 to 17. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. So God is talking to himself amongst the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. And all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. 
and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Jumping to Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God took Adam and dropped him in Iraq. That's what we know. So, the Lord God took, took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There's an amazing thing about God's creation and humanity and men and women. They are the only creature, the only thing that's made in the image of God. And, and you, we see what that looks like in, uh, in verse 26. He takes Adam and Eve and makes them like governors for him, like ruling on his behalf. Think about that. The God of the universe, the creator, took man and woman and made them rulers over creation in his, uh, in his name, essentially. This is an amazing permission, an amazing responsibility. They're like governors. They're, they rule over the sea, it says, the land and all the animals. Then in verse 29, it says that God placed humankind in rulership over all of the ground and plants of the earth. In other words, God put human beings in charge of everything on the earth. That's a huge permission that God gives people, and a beautiful thing. The only other person that could ever claim something like that would be God himself. So that, so that means that unless God gives that authority, you don't get it. And God could take that authority back anytime he wants. He's the supreme ruler of all, the creator. But it's an amazing thing to think. God decided to give some of his, his image into people to be governors over the earth. It says in Psalm 8, I, read this, I happened to read this last night. You have made them, men, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all the flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. So not only does God give us this full like, rulership and governorship over the earth underneath him, as a governor would, would, would rule on, on the earth, he also gives them this really amazing gift. He gives them the power of choice, of volition, of being able to choose yes, no, do this, don't do this. Something that God himself, obviously, as the personality who decided to create humanity and the world and everything that we see, uh, had. He gave that to people also. And that reflects God's image as well. It's an amazing privilege. And with great privilege comes great responsibility. Uh, God did not create robots, we hear this, we've heard this perhaps many times, that just do, do, do whatever he programs them to do with his remote control. He created humans that have choice to choose good or bad. And uh, with that in mind, we're going to read Genesis 3. We're flashing forward to that scene in the garden that we might know quite well. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals, the Lord God had made. The serpent was Satan incarnated into this, um, this snake. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? First of all, did, he, uh, did God say that? No, he said you can eat from every tree in the garden except for one. It was a garden of permission. That's why I want to get, God was giving them permission, not, not really this terrible restriction. But Eve kind of took that seed of doubt in her heart maybe question God's character. The woman said to the serpent, we can eat all of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. 
You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree, fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate it. (laughs) Nice. Not nice. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and on all wild animals you will crawl on your belly. And you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. And then uh, God had judgments for Eve and childbirth and Adam for toil and labor. We're going to skip to verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, This man has now become like one of us. God said among himself in the Trinity, This man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So what do we see in this account? You know, after God has given, uh, created us in his image, given us authority over everything with just one restriction, that humankind's undoing was misunderstanding their place in creation. Adam and Eve decided that they themselves would not only enjoy all the good things God had given them, but they could also be independent of God, of their creator, which is a crazy kind of thing, that they could be independent from God, do what they want, and become lowercase gods. We can make our own decisions. There's no other authority in our lives. And so they took it upon themselves to disobey God. They, they misunderstood that they were governors and they were not the creator. Um, and, and because of that, everything fell. Adam and Eve, in other words, were finite people. They found out when they sinned, not infinite. God is the only infinite. God is the only sovereign. God is the only king. But they thought to themselves, maybe, maybe we're more than governors. Maybe we're more than people created. Maybe we are in charge. Maybe we can go our own way. And God tests them with this one single command in the garden of permission and delight. Do not eat from this one tree. And they chose to do it. Adam and Eve were finite. God is infinite. And ladies and gentlemen, this is how it relates right to home for us. We are finite people as well. Uh, God is infinite. God is the creator of everything. We are the creation. I was having a conversation with a young philosophy student last week downtown just happens sometimes, I guess. Someone from, that had been to Skidmore and was a little older, and read, so we were talking. He was a very interesting young guy, and he had some, some interesting ideas. He expressed to me his belief that God is in everything. It was, that's what, something we call pantheism, that God is in everything. You know, God is in this stand and also in me. And I expressed my belief to him 
which sounds philosophical, but is actually biblical, that everything is in God. It says in the Bible, in Acts 17.28, in God we live and move and have our being. In Hebrews 1.3, that God holds everything together by the word of his power. In him we live, move, and have our being. We are here because God wants us here. God is the creator, and we are reliant on him fully. We are not independent of God. We are dependent on him every day. If God were to someday not will us to exist, we would just disappear. We are held together by God's powerful word in this world. God's given us all this authority, but we always must remember that we are dependent on God, that we are the creation, that we are just governors. And because of all this, because we are the creation, we are accountable to God as our creator. He is the ultimate uh, sovereign ruler in our lives. We are not. God is the only true God. Until we understand that we're going to live in a very frustrated and broken way. Um, We are God's finite creatures. God is infinite. We are fully accountable to him. We are fully dependent on him. And the more that we realize that and believe that, the more we can begin to enjoy uh, the governorship that God's given us, the more that we can enjoy all the permission God's given us. Instead of constantly hanging out on the edges and, uh, and seeing how far we can get out before something terrible happens to us. Um, we are just like Adam and Eve. We are, in, we are dependent on God. And after Adam and Eve failed that test that God set for them in the garden, they ate that fruit, they became, they say, fallen beings. God comes down and judges Adam and Eve and the serpent. They all blame, shift each other. It was his fault, her fault, hiding from God. It's kind of stuff that we do when we are squirming. And God puts consequences on to the human race. Uh, this quote from St. Augustine I was drawn to from, another, from a, another speaker I heard this week. Augustine said, Adam was able not to sin, but sadly he chose to sin. And as a result of that, we are not able not to sin. You know, we are all born with a sinful, uh, fallen nature from the time we're little kids. And this is like a hilarious thing when you're a parent, because it becomes apparent to you that we're all born fallen beings. You're not supposed to tell stories about your kids in church, but just a great story from yesterday. We said Elias and Olivia have the remote, and they're like, who gets to choose a show? And they fight over that all the time. Back and forth it goes. Of course, we don't allow any scream time. We're great parents. All granola and all natural soap. But, you know, they were watching TV. And Elias said, Olivia said, it's my turn to choose a show. And Elias, Elias hid the remote. He's like, I didn't hide it. He put up his hand, and you could see the remote in his sleeve. <laughs> And I said to Elias, Elias, you're, you lied, okay? So let's just say, you know, you lied. Who taught you to lie? And he said, this kid at school taught me to lie. <laughs> and I was like, I'm preaching on this tomorrow. The kid at school didn't teach Elias to lie. Elias knew how to lie already. All of us know how to lie. And we all do it all the time. Interesting, huh? So we all have this virus of the fallen nature. And, uh, and when Adam and Eve uh, turn against uh, God's, uh, what God told them in his direction, this virus infected them, and it infects every, uh, every human that's ever lived, which is why we see all these horrible things, as you saw in the, in, the, in the presentation, wars and tribes fighting against one another, and just, this world is a fallen place. We expect that bad things 
happen a lot of times in the world because it's a fallen place. And uh, Rob and, and Martin, when they were here, they said this quote, sin always takes you further than you want to go, faster than you ever thought it was possible to get there. And this is true of, of the sin of, of Adam. You know, Adam and Eve did not expect to happen what happened to them in the garden. They had no expectation of what happened. They thought they were getting all kinds of great stuff. They got all kinds of terrible stuff. And that's how sin is. It always brings you uh, further than you want to go, faster than you ever thought it was possible. And we all hear lies and whisper to, whispers to us all the time, lies of the enemy. Who's going to get hurt by this? You're the only one that's going to get hurt by this. Who knows about this? No one's going to know about this. Do this just one time. You know, you have all these, we, we have these illusions of control, but we, we buy into lies all the time, constantly. And when, when we do sin, it always takes us farther than we want to go, faster than we thought we'd get there. So God judges sin in the garden. He judges the serpent Satan. Even Adam and all of us since then are born with a sin nature. We have a remote in our sleeve. That's what I'm saying. But, the, but it's not all doom and gloom. God makes a promise in Genesis 3, 15. This is one of my favorite things. He talks, it's a prophecy. And I will put enmity between you and the woman... Satan and the woman, the figurative mother of all, so the human race, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, you will strike his heel. This is a prophecy that's universally thought to be about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who would come years later and would be crucified on the cross and actually die and be buried for three days and then rise Again, you know, Satan's offspring murdered Jesus. They, they bruised his heel, but he crushed Satan's head. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he provided a way of salvation for anyone who, is, who has this inborn sin problem, basically everybody, that they can have freedom, rescuing salvation, and be saved. God provided that through Jesus. So from the people of the Old Testament who heard a promise like this in Genesis 3.15, and the many times it's repeated uh, in different ways through the Old Testament as we read it, they looked forward to the time when God would provide this salvation for them. And we look back to when God provided that salvation for us. And we look forward to this great salvation God has for us after this life is over. It's all about Jesus, all for Jesus. And from the beginning, God had made a provision through Jesus. I love uh, Genesis 3.21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and his wife and clothed them. He covered their shame and their nakedness. And again, this is, just, this is the beautiful picture of atonement, that Jesus' blood covers over our sins so that we, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, not our sin nature, not our mistakes, not the things we've done wrong. God sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at us. This is an amazing, amazing thing. So think about the great love of God our Father for us. Though we are dead in our sins, um, though we from time to time continue to walk in sin and make choices to be independent from God and declare that we are in charge, that God draws us back with his great kindness and that God himself has set a rescue plan in place through Jesus who defeated, defeated Satan's sin and death at the cross a little over 2,000 years ago providing a covering for our sin as a free gift received through just faith. 
I trust you, God. God Jesus, someone said, Jesus, what are the works of God? And he said, to believe in the one that God has sent. Your, your job is to believe in me. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you've been stretching to wonder how Genesis 1 applies to your life or does this have any significance. But uh, no matter how bad things are in your life or how much you've realized, geez, I really do lie a lot. I really am a, a sinner. It really is in me. Uh, no matter how messy things are and unredeemable things might seem, this is the answer of God for you from the Bible. That God loves you and God has a plan to save you and redeem your life, no matter where you, how you come to him. And his promised plan to do that is Jesus Christ from the beginning. So this morning, I just invite you uh, to, to, to receive afresh that beautiful grace that God's given us through Jesus. Whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, God loves you. And in his kindness, God has sent Jesus, which is God in the flesh, to save you. And God has a plan to redeem your life. And that name is Jesus Christ. That's who it is. It's a person who walks with you. So as we're closing today, I'm going to, leave, I'm going to have a moment of silence for all of us to pray just, just silently and talk to God. For some of you, uh, the, simple, the simple prayer is the declaration, you are God and I am not. Teach me your ways. You are the creator, I am the creation. Help me to walk in the right way. For some of you, the prayer is, Jesus, I know I have this sin issue. I thank you that you have made a plan to save me through Jesus, and I put my faith in him today for my salvation and my redemption and some of you simply just need to remember how much grace God has given you in your life and how much um, beautiful creation God's given you to govern, to, to mold, to make beautiful in your work, in your family. And just think about that responsibility you carry out in your job, which you might think of as meaning, menial right now. It's not menial. It's spiritual. God's given you ground to cultivate. He's given you a garden of permission to work within. And he's given you this opportunity to make something beautiful in this world, to be a governor, a redeemed governor, with God as the head. Let's just take a minute to pray quietly and I'll close us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. You see us in our helpless state, and you made a plan to save us. And that his name is Jesus. Redeem our lives, God. Help us to better govern the responsibilities you've given us and appreciate the beauty that we can cultivate in our lives underneath your great authority. Let us see the permissions you've given us, not those restrictions, that we might realize the great freedom the sons and daughters of God have. We look to you, Jesus, as our leader, as our Lord, as our Savior. We praise your name. We're thankful that you created us and that you sustain us. In Jesus' name, amen.
You are dispersed. Go and be the church.